You're listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Luke. Here's Nate. Well, as we continue on in Luke's Gospel, we come to the 17th chapter where Jesus continues to instruct and prepare his disciples for the future era when he will ascend and they will be the leaders in the body of Christ in the local church and take the gospel message all throughout the world. One of the things that Paul would write in Ephesians 4 verse 16 is this, each part of the body of Christ, when it is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And here in this chapter, at least in part, Jesus is going to help prepare his disciples for the building up of of one another. And one of the things that is a question mark in the new community of the body of Christ and the church is the question of what do we do with sin? What is our attitude to be concerning elements of sin? Well, he says here in verse 1 to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So one of the first things Jesus says to his disciples in this chapter is very simple. Temptations to sin are sure to come. In other words, we live in a broken world. We have a spiritual enemy. We live in broken bodies that have tasted sin that are not yet glorified. We have not yet been resurrected and made in the image completely of Christ. That day is yet future for us. And so, because of all of this, we should not be shocked by the reality of temptation. Jesus said, temptations to sin are sure to come. But then he announced in verse 1, but woe to the one through whom they come. So inside this covenant community, the body of Christ, inside of the church, we're to expect that temptations will still exist. But we don't want to be the instrument by which the temptations arrive, by which the temptations come. Now, it seems that Jesus specifically has in mind being a vehicle for temptation that affects little ones. Now, that could be a reference to in verse 2 when he says, it'd be better for a millstone to be hung around your neck and to be cast into the sea than that you would cause one of these little ones to sin. That could be a reference to simply children not wanting to stumble the faith of little children, but it could also be used to describe immature believers. You do not want to be in this new community, the vessel or the instrument by which temptation comes and stumbles the faith of a child or an immature childlike believer, someone who has just gotten started in the affairs and the matters of Christ. So you don't want to be someone who stumbles, someone who is young in the faith uh, or young in age. 
Jesus then goes on to announce in verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So one of the elements in this new community of ours as we build one another up in love is, as we've already seen in the first two verses, that we are not to be stumbling blocks to one another, but that actually we want to do the opposite. We want to encourage and build up the faith of our fellow believers. But here in verse 3 and 4, Jesus tells us that another element that is found inside of the body of Christ is very simple. It's the element of rebuke. He says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Now, uh, this isn't the only New Testament word uh, on the subject. Uh, We're not just to be sniffing out sin and rebuking it. We're also to be, according to the New Testament, long-suffering, patient, merciful, gracious, understanding. Uh, However, there are moments where we are called to speak the truth in love and to edify one another in this kind of way. There, There are moments where we have to address actual, not perceived, Uh, but actual sin inside uh, the body of Christ. I think probably a word of wisdom along the applications of this verse would simply be that if you love it, if you enjoy rebuking someone, then more than likely you're operating in the flesh, not operating by the Spirit. It should be something that isn't eagerly desired, but something that with maybe even a little bit of hesitation, you realize this is something I need to do. There is sin that must be rebuked. Now, another element, of course, inside the body of Christ is that of forgiveness. Jesus said, if he, for, if he repents, forgive him. And if this is something he does seven times in a day, and he says, I repent, you must seven times a day forgive him. Now, Jesus isn't, of course, doing anything to narrow the scope of forgiveness. So he more than likely isn't saying you should only forgive if they repent. And he's also not saying, and you should only forgive up to seven times. No, he, everything I've seen in Jesus, he makes forgiveness a mandatory, difficult. He broadens the scope of it every single time. So it seems that Jesus would be saying, hey, all of the time, be a forgiving person. Release the forgiveness towards those who are around you. And and of course, Jesus is saying this to his disciples. They would need to cultivate and create an environment of grace and forgiveness and long-suffering and mercy in their midst if they were going to succeed in taking the gospel throughout the world. The apostles, hearing this, verse 5, said to the Lord. Now, that's interesting that Luke refers to them here as the apostles, but These disciples, Luke refers to them now as apostles, they say to Jesus, in light of all of this, we're to rebuke, but we're to forgive. We're to forgive seven times a day. They say, increase our faith. Increase our faith. Who wouldn't like to have a little more faith in life? They say, increase our faith. The Lord said, verse 6, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, 
you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, of course, the question is, what does Jesus mean in this rather obscure and at first glance, strange response? Well, it seems to be, at least at first glance, that Jesus, when they say increase our faith, gives them a little bit of a corrective insight. It basically says, you don't need more. It's not more that you need. It's not quantity that you need, but quality. He says, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed. In other words, it's not really more that you need. It's where are you putting your faith, or more specifically, who are you putting your faith in? When you put your faith in God, When you're trusting in the Lord, when you're leaning upon him, he says, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, I I think that legitimate and faith in God really never wants to do anything like this. Uh, It doesn't settle for tricks like these, but legitimate, real faith in God wants to be able to, when asked to forgive, to be able to forgive. Legitimate and real faith in God in moments where fear might come in, doesn't want to be afraid, but wants to be bold in Christ. Legitimate, real, loving faith in God in moments where there might be great sorrow and weeping, wants to still have a constant, real faith and hope in God of what he can do. And, And so what do you see here with the saying to the mulberry tree, be planted in the sea. Well, we know trees don't get planted in the sea. That's unnatural. So it seems that what Jesus is saying is that faith in God will enable you to live above the natural rules. Because, you know, to forgive seven times a day, that is going so far beyond the natural man. And for us as believers, man, we've got to ditch thinking that we can live the Christian life with our natural effort, our natural strength. No, we have to put our trust and faith daily in Christ, in God, and he will enable us to live lives that go above the natural rules. He then says in verse 7, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me, and dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty." A great question to ask concerning this parable from Jesus or this question from Jesus is, have I seen myself, have you seen yourself as a servant of God? He gives this little analogy. He talks about a servant who is plowing or keeping the sheep coming in from the field. And Jesus says, if that's your servant, are you going to say, hey, go eat and drink? No, you'll say, first serve me, then you can go and eat and drink once I have been well fed and taken care of. Now, this is interesting because Jesus says that we then, once we've done all we were commanded, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. When you think about the gospel, one thing that 
should come into your heart is this sense and this understanding that you could never repay God for his infinite grace upon your life. You could never completely thank the Lord. You could never repay God for what he has done for you. So in response to the gospel, the cross of Christ, we say, no, my obedience, my service, it's duty. I must do these things. It's not about my glory. Uh, I shouldn't be, receive praise for this. This is my duty. The beautiful thing, though, about the Lord is that he will not let us say this eternally. No, he will look upon us, and even though we will say, we are unworthy servants, we've only done what was our duty, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in to the joy of the Lord. But for us as believers, we want to be people who live lives that are basically a thank you note to God. Now, on the way to Jerusalem, verse 11, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. Now, when it says in verse 11 that he's heading to Jerusalem, we know that at this point in Luke's gospel to be synonymous with heading to the cross. These 10 lepers stand away at a distance from the Lord, which the law required. Leviticus 13, 46, Numbers 5, verse 2 and 3 required that uh, a leper would stand far away and cry out in advance so that people wouldn't inadvertently interact with them and become ceremonially, according to the laws of Israel, unclean. When he saw them, they heard their shout, but he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Now, Leviticus 14 had outlined a specific priestly ceremony for cleansed lepers. Now, obviously, this was something that was rarely, if ever, used. The priesthood didn't have a huge demand for lepers who had been healed to be reinstated into the covenant community and declared clean because, well, it wasn't a very common thing for a leper to be healed of their sickness and of their disease. And so Jesus tells these guys, listen, you go and show yourself to show yourselves to the priests. And it says there in verse 14, and as they went, they were cleansed. In other words, when Jesus made this command to them, there was the implied promise that as they went, they would actually be healed. They would actually be touched. And that reminds us, of course, as as God's children, of of the plenteous implied promises that we have from Jesus. Hebrews 11 verse 6 tells us that if we draw near to God, we must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. There are implied promises that we have from the Lord as we seek him, as we open our hearts to him, as we cry out to him in prayer. He will meet us. And so here Jesus says to them, listen, if you go to be cleansed, you will be healed in effect. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turning back, praising God with a loud voice and fell on his face at Jesus's feet, giving him thanks. This man, like Naaman in 2 Kings 5, when healed from his leprosy, this man rejoiced and was thankful to God. 
he comes back to Jesus and he gives thanks. We don't know when these men were healed, how far along the road they were when God touched them. We don't know if it happened all at once for each one of them or whether it was a gradual thing or like popcorn kernels popping. It was one leper after another who was healed. But eventually, whenever this man was healed, whether it was very immediate or when they were almost to Jerusalem, he turned around and fell on his face before Jesus giving thanks to the Lord. In this, we learn that God is looking for a praising heart. He is looking for people who are thankful to God for what he has provided for them, for what he has done in their lives, and to have within our hearts a a habit of returning to the Lord, saying, God, thank you. This is the overriding spirit and heart of a person who serves the Lord. We should not be doing it to earn our salvation. We should not be serving the Lord to earn great standing in God's sight or in the sight of God's people. We should not be doing it for the praise of man or the glory of self. No, we should be doing it as an act of thanksgiving to God. God, thank you for touching my life, for working in my heart. So this man comes back and praises Christ. Now Luke gives us a little detail when in verse 16 he says, Now, he was a Samaritan. Of all of the lepers who were touched, the Samaritan leper returned to Jesus. Now, we know, of course, that the Samaritans were quite often considered a mixed race by the Jewish people, uh, that they weren't quite the covenant people that the people of Israel were. They had a mixture of Israelite heritage and pagan Gentile heritage. And this Samaritan man comes back to the Lord. And Jesus answered in verse 17, were not 10 cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. When Jesus made this statement, he was making a point about the nation of Israel, and I think in one sense foreshadowing the future work of the gospel in the Gentile world. Hey, look at this. A foreigner, Jesus said, came back to give me praise. And he highlights the man's faith when he says, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now in verse 20, uh, the Pharisees asked a question. It says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, He answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So he's asked this question uh, by the Pharisees, which more than likely indicates a hostile line of questioning. There were, of course, some Pharisees who ended up being believers who asked questions with a real sincerity and purity of heart. But more often than not, when the Pharisees asked Jesus a question, it was a hostile question. And perhaps the hostility here was, hey, it doesn't really look like your kingdom is arriving. And so they ask, when will this kingdom of God uh, actually come? Now, Jesus answers them in a couple of ways. First of all, in verse 20, he says, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. In other words, 
someday the kingdom will be very visible. You know, Revelation 19, the return of Christ, a very visible public return. Jesus would announce and say at different moments that the coming of the Son of Man would be like the flashing of the lightning from the east to the west. It would be observable. It would be seen. It would be very public. But Jesus announces here that at least initially, someday it will be very visible, but at least initially the kingdom will come in ways that cannot be observed. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, is not coming in ways that can be observed. And when Jesus died on the cross, he was making a public spectacle of principalities and powers of darkness. But in that moment when Jesus died on the cross, People walked away beating their breasts and shaking their heads. They weren't seeing what they thought to be great victory, but it was. They just couldn't observe it. They couldn't see it. Then Jesus goes on to say, nor will they say, look, here it is or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, when Jesus made this statement, listen, he says, at, at, at first, when the kingdom comes, it comes, it's not going to be this geographic thing where you could say, here it is, or there it is. He says, no, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, when he says that, there are a few interpretational issues. Is Jesus saying, uh, sort of like a new age teaching, that that The kingdom is really just deep down inside of all of us. Hey, don't worry. The kingdom of God is is just, it's inside of you. It's, it's, It's in the midst of you. Now, some people do believe that's what Jesus is saying. But I don't think that's what he would ever say to a group of Pharisees asking uh, this kind of question. Perhaps what Jesus was doing here was that he was pointing to himself and saying to them, I'm right here. I'm in your midst. Wherever I am, the kingdom is. So I think in one sense, Jesus is simply saying, the kingdom is not necessarily observed, but it is evidenced. And I think with a believer, you know, when someone makes a profession of Christ, you, you would say, well, I really am not the one who knows. God is the judge of every human being. But there are certain evidences that I can see coming out of a believer's life. Evidence of the kingdom of God, that they've been birthed into his kingdom, being lived out uh, inside their lives. Now, Jesus said to his disciples in verse 22, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. So Jesus here is saying, look, someday the kingdom will be seen, but after I rise from the dead, you'll want to see it, and we want to see it. But he says, the days are coming when you'll want to, but you won't get to. This was actually one of the questions of the disciples before Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. They said, Lord, will you now at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The days are coming, Jesus said, when you'll want to see it, but you won't see it. And they will say to you, verse 23, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes, and I alluded to this a few minutes ago, as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Now, Jesus is going to deal with all of this a little more fully when we get to Luke 
chapter 21. But here, in effect, he's saying, look, people are going to claim to be the Messiah. They're going to say, look here or look there. But don't worry, when I return, it will be a very public return, like the, like the flashing of the lightning from one side of the sky to the other. So will the Son of Man be in his day. So I think for us as believers, we have to remember that people will at times try to distract us from the simplicity of a, of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Look at this thing. Look at that thing. Rather than just focusing upon Jesus, who we find in his word and in personal fellowship with him and long for the day that he will return for us. Revelation 1 verse 7 says, behold, he's coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. Revelation 19, verse 11, I saw heaven opened. Behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. There is a day coming where Jesus' coming will be very public, known, and obvious. First, Jesus said in verse 25, he, the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. There is a necessity. We, before we can observe the second coming, the glorious visible second coming, the lightning flash of the second coming, before that there had to be a first coming. And for them, the, 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 this event was future. For us, it's past tense. We're living after this event. He must first suffer, Jesus said, and be, uh, many things and be rejected by this generation. We are living after that uh, reality. We're living after the cross, looking forward to the return uh, of Jesus. So the question that we would ask then is, okay, well, the first thing happened. He had to suffer and be rejected. Since that's already happened, what will it be like when Jesus does publicly return and establish his visible kingdom? He's establishing his invisible kingdom right now that sort of works itself out in a couple of visible ways, but his uber, ultra visible kingdom, what will it be like when he establishes his kingdom? Well, he says it in verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, So will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So Jesus here talks about some normal routines of life. I think in one sense, what Jesus is saying is that when he returns, when his visible kingdom comes, there will be, in one sense, the continuing of the normal routines of life. Noah had been preaching and teaching and you know, a herald of righteousness, according to 2 Peter 2, verse 5. But despite all of that, everybody just continued on eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. And also in the days of Lot, also from the book of Genesis, they continued in the normal routines of life, eating and drinking and then buying and selling and planting and building. It's not that everything will be perfect, 
but people will likely think that the world will continue as is. Now, this is a little bit of a difficult concept for us because other passages in the Bible seem to highlight cataclysmic disaster before the coming of Christ. And to me, I read this as a clue as to the timing of the rapture event that I believe will come to pass. And, And so just kind of a business as usual approach, a rapture, and then cataclysmic disaster before the public and visible return of Jesus. And so Jesus then says, on that day, on that day of judgment, when things are harsh and difficult and the world begins to unravel, let the one who is on the house stop with his goods in the house not come down or take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other will be left. Now, as I just mentioned, I do believe in the rapture of the church. I do believe 1 Thessalonians 4.17 and 1 Corinthians 15.51 and 52 are fresh revelations that were given to the Apostle Paul, things that were previously a mystery that he revealed, that he uncovered for us that there will be a moment, a twinkling of an eye where we are raptured and caught up to be with the Lord. But uh, for me, I really don't think that Jesus is talking about a rapture here when he talks about one taken and another left. I think he's talking about a warning of the coming judgment. He talks about a housetop, which would be indicative of a Jewish time of trouble, a Jewish tribulation. And at the end of all of this, because they said to him, verse 37, where Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures gather. I wonder if Jesus at that point is alluding to the great destruction that comes upon the world at his second coming, where the angel stands, Revelation nineteen seventeen, and calls with a loud voice to the birds that fly directly overhead and said, come and gather for the great supper of God, the birds eating the flesh of those who will die in that battle of the armies of the world against Christ at his return. And so he says, where the corpse is, there the vultures or the eagles will gather. So I wonder if Jesus is simply saying, hey, look, a time of destruction is coming. One taken, another left. It's going to be a hard life for people who resist me up until the very end. But of course, the exhortation that we can be left with ourselves, verse 32, remember Lot's wife. There was no urgency in her. She looked back at what she was told to turn away from. As God's people, we want to be a people who urgently flee the lusts of this world and do not look back longingly upon them, for our kingdom comes, and it comes with Christ. God bless you, and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.